Welcome to our 38th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Russell, what is our first key point today? Well, with our first key point, we're going to be talking about the Nubo Farzug. I'm sure I probably butchered that name quite a bit, but it's probably probably going to be calling it the Rheinmetall Gross Tractor. The Gross Tractor. The Gross Tractor. <laughs> All right, we can... We can do that. Yeah. And, uh, what's our second point to that? What are we going to be talking about? Yeah, um, something that kind of I came up with. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, nicknames of tanks and, and barrel art. You know, we get a lot of questions about that. Yeah. You know, when that uh, Fury movie came out. True. People were like, well, are, are they allowed to name their own tanks? And are, are did they really paint that stuff on the side of the barrels and stuff? Yeah. Uh, so you're going to answer that first tonight? Pretty, pretty interesting, yeah. All right, cool. All right. Well, Russell, I know we've been getting tons of emails and questions on why, uh, you know, they write tank names on, you know, tanks and barrels. But first, you know, as our listeners know, we play World of Tanks. And I was driving around in my gross tractor, and I thought, hey, let's make Russ research this. <laughs> so, Russ, tell me about the gross tractor. The German Nubo Fahrzeug, literally translated into new construction vehicle, series of tank prototypes were a first attempt to create a heavy tank for the Wehrmacht after Adolf Hitler had come to power. Can we just call it the gross tractor so you don't have to keep... Yes, thank you. I know. That's a, uh, there's no way I could pronounce that. <laughs> Nubafazug. <laughs> uh, German is a beautiful language, but I have... Uh, I have not a clue on most of it. I don't have a it, clue. So. And, and I, I have no tongue for language. <laughs> I know you people out there that Even listen. Even English sometimes, though. Oh, uh, uh, that... <laughs> Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce my buddy Russ here. One of my best friends. That's me. Yeah. Punch me in the face again. Good Lord. All right. Let's get back on track. Sorry, guys. We're having a little bit too much fun. Multi-turreted, heavy, and slow, they were not considered successful, which led to only five being produced. These were primarily used for propaganda purposes, though three took part in the Battle of Norway in 1940. Now, like I said, we play World of Tanks, and, and I drive this, and it is probably the worst tank in the game. <laughs> it is just a terrible, terrible tank. And, and I always said that they, you can actually buy these digital tanks. You use real money, and you get these little digital tanks. <laughs> I know it's the stupidest thing you've ever heard of, but I, I spent my good hard money you know, I'm buying this, and it was the worst thing. And just think, if game. we had to do it all over again, we could have got paid to drive the real things if we would have uh, done it right. If we'd have done it right, I know. We're always a day late and a dollar uh, short. Always. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, Russ. The very roots of the gross tractor are connected to the arrival of Hitler as the new head of state, and the desire to have as quickly as possible a suitable heavy tank. 
both for the army needs and for propaganda purposes. It had to be a symbol of the renewal of the German army, and it was conceived in quite a hurry. Its inspirations can be traced back to the British multi-turreted prototype Vickers A1E1 Independent, which also inspired the Soviet T-28 and T-35. The former was under intense scrutiny when the Reichswehr decided in 1926 to give a contract to Rheinmetall, Porsig, Daimler, Benz, and Krupp for the Reichswehr gross tractor. We're talking about 1926 and stuff like that, and Hitler taking power in the 30s. Uh, Germany had signed the Treaty of Versailles, right? Sure. They couldn't build tanks. Okay, tell, explain that. This was the disguise designation used to cover up tank development, which was forbidden under the Versailles Treaty. Uh, tests were performed at the Panzer Truppen School, CAMA, uh, the gunnery and testing grounds at Kazan in the USSR, and Lieutenant Malbrandt supervised the tests. This high-security proving ground was part of the Joint Red Army and Reichswehr Training and Testing Cooperation, born from the Treaty of Rapallo, signed in 1922. Two prototypes of Daimler-Benz Gross Tractor one were tested in 1929, showing transmission problems. Imagine that. Two others, the Rheinmetall Borsig's Gross Tractor two were also tested in 1929 and modified for new tests in 1931. After a new campaign of trials, the four prototypes were given to the 1st Panzer Division for the 1935 maneuvers. Since they had been plagued by many problems, they ended as monuments outside training camps or practice targets for gunners, but paved the way for the upcoming gross tractor. Let me get this straight. Uh, so the Soviets were helping the Germans make tanks and test tanks. Uh, I, I'm sure... <laughs> They, they're never going to regret oh, that decision. Yeah. You know, I, that's not going to come back and bite them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and then, like you were saying, they had transmission problems. And we kind of giggled about that yeah. because, you know, the Panther tanks, when they yeah, came out and were exactly. headed to Kursk, what, they had 200 and <laughs> three quarters of them caught fire and yeah. broke down before it even got there. Exactly. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead, Russ. Yeah, the Panzer Kampfwagen. NBFC 5 and 6, only two prototypes were built at first, one by Krupp, Model A, and the other by Rheinmetall Borsig, Model B, and they differed only by their gun arrangement. The 75mm, or 2.95-inch, KWK L-24 main gun, and secondary 37mm, or 1.46-inch, KWK L-45, was mounted coaxially in a single mantle on the Krupp prototype, and in vertical tandem on the Rheinmetall one. So basically you got a 75 millimeter right next, you know, in the same mount uh, of this 37 millimeter. That's a crazy looking Interesting. tank. Interesting, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it had to be crazy looking. The two secondary turrets equipped with 7.92 millimeter machine guns were borrowed from the Panzer I, then in development, but modified in order to fit. The Rheinmetall version was named the Panzerkampfwagen NBFZ-5, and the Krupp vehicles were named the Panzerkampfwagen NBFZ-6. Once the two designs were ready, the first two prototypes were built in 1933-1934, and three others were built in 1934-1936. They're not allowed to build these. Like you were saying, they're not allowed to build tanks, so they called them a tractor. And the new construction tractors 
and, and they're taking them over to the Soviet Union to test them out. Man, this is a bad idea all the way around. Took some guts. Yeah, you know, they're like, hey, I, if I was the Soviets, I don't think I would have done that. I know. And they, yeah. looking back, they probably wish they, they probably wish had enough. Had enough. The first two tanks were built in mild steel with partially welded holes. Final assembly, fittings and turrets, was performed at Krupp. The first one had the original Rheinmetall turret with the tandem guns and a horseshoe Fug turret antenna. All the other four were given the Krupp turret and coaxial guns. There was also a project of conversion to a Nebel Panzer armed with a 105mm or a 4.13 inch gun firing smoke rounds, which never really materialized. The two secondary turrets were mounted in a lozenge configuration, one on the front left and the other one on the right rear. The driver compartment was next to the front turret with the main fighting compartment behind. They've gotten these little Panzer I turrets. They've taken them off and they put one on the front of the tank. Not not the turret that they've got the big gun on. They just put a turret for the machine gun. And then they put a turret on the back of the tank that, you know, keep you know enemy from sneaking up from behind. Golly. So it's got two turreted machine gun wow. turrets. Plus the 75 HE gun, basically, and the 37 for a tank-killing gun. They're trying to put too much into a tank. Too much, yeah. Too much all on one one tank, yep. There were two rear hatches for the original BMW engine, which is the Type A, and replaced for the four others by a more powerful 300-horsepower gasoline Maybach HL108 fed with 457 liters of fuel. So they took out BMW because yeah. it wasn't pulling pulling enough. I mean, it was probably yeah, too much weight. Probably. So they put in a Maybach. Hey, tell us about the transmission. Transmission was done by a crash gearbox, five-speed forward, and no reverse. That's a bad idea. Oh, wow. The suspension system consisted of modified coil leaf springs coupled with a Christie-type torsion arms. Oh, well, I'm sure uh, Christie's getting his check today. I bet he is. <laughs> Attached to a set of five bogies with paired road wheels. The front single road wheel was suspended independently, like on the British A1E1 and the Russian T28. They were protected by side skirts with mud chutes in echelon under each return roller with two access doors to the suspension. The turret also had two large one-piece access side hatches. The commander cupola was at the turret rear end, and provision for ammunition was 80 rounds for the main gun, 50 for the coaxial 37mm, and around 6,000 rounds for the two MG34 machine guns. A lot of firepower. Again, I'm thinking this is born to fail because it doesn't have reverse. I know. They're trying to put on too many guns, too many many turrets. true. Too much mechanical things that could go wrong. Armor was not particularly thicker than other Panzers of the time, but just enough to provide minimal protection against infantry weapons, light, anti-tank guns, and shrapnel. Uh, Again, so it's got 75mm cannon, you know, which I'm sure they were going to use for bunkers and stuff like that. I I understand thinking that's kind of like the Lee. Yeah. Lee had the 75. Uh, They had a 37mm for anti-tank, you know, just like the Lee and the Grant had. And had basically three machine guns, you know, one in the rear and a couple up front. And it's surrounded by armor. You know, it it sounds good on paper, I bet. Yeah, yeah. You know what, Russ, let's just get to my favorite part of the show, the stats. The gross tractor 
was designed and manufactured by Rheinmetall. It was designed between 1933 and 1934 and produced between 1934 and 1936. There was five of them built. They weighed about 23.41 tons or 25.81 short tons. They were 6.6 meters long or 21 feet 8 inches long, 2.19 meters wide or 7 foot 2 inches wide, and they were 2.98 meters high or 9 foot 9 inches high. It is a lot like the Lee. Pretty close, yeah. You know, same, you know, because what what did the U.S. Army do with the Lee? Yeah. They gave it the 37, they gave it the 75, and they put machine guns all over it. Yeah. So what kind of crew did this thing have? It had a crew of six, which consisted of a commander, a driver, a loader, and three gunners. That's insane. I know. Uh, well, it is. Uh, well, uh, the Lee had what nine? Yeah. So the Lee's still the king. I feel sorry <laughs> for the loader trying to load three. Oh, here, Bob, load <laughs> busy the, guy. Load the seventy-five. <laughs> hey, Bob, load the thirty-seven. Hey, <laughs> hey, come on with these machine guns. <laughs> the armor was anywhere from thirteen to twenty millimeters thick, or point five one to point seven nine inches thick. So not going to yeah, stop a lot not of stuff. Going to for a heavy tank. I mean, yeah, they were yeah. wanting to be a heavy tank. Yeah. The main armament, like we talked about, was the seventy-five millimeter KWK L-24. The secondary armament was the thirty-seven millimeter KWK thirty-six or the L-45, and it had three seven-point-nine-two millimeter machine guns or the thirteen-slash-thirty-four. You can tell just by the stats. They're trying to put too much into this tank. Too much in one tank. Yeah, the engine was a 290 horsepower BMW VA or 300 horsepower Maybach HL 108TR. So they jerked out the BMWs and yeah. finally ended up with 300 yeah. horsepower. Okay. Well, 10 horsepower. I'm not sure how much more that would do. It must have been uh, enough to get you in a little bit change. more. Yeah, yeah. It had the suspension was actually coil springs. At operational road range of 120 kilometers or 75 miles. And its speed was about 25 kilometers per hour on the road or 16 miles per hour. That's an awful slow moving slow. tank. Uh, you know, And you better hope you didn't take a wrong turn because you're not going to be able to back up. Oh, yeah. I forgot. It yeah. doesn't have reverse. No reverse. So no reverse. It's slow. <laughs> it, it's huge. It's long. It's got a bunch of turrets and, and really not that good armor. Yeah. Uh, okay, now I know why they only made five of these things. Yeah, you know now, why it wasn't very successful. You know what? Uh, what happened to these tanks? And, and tell us about its combat service. Yeah, soon after delivery, the three late prototypes were extensively tested at the proving grounds at Putlos, while the first two took part in army maneuvers. However, by the end of 1936, it was decided to cancel all further development of the series, and priority had been given to the Panzer IVs. Yeah, they made a lot. Yeah, now, uh, we. I don't think we've done an episode on the Panzer IV, but man, th- that was the workhorse of the German Army. Yeah. We'll have to do one oh, special yeah. on that. Oh yeah, the main tactic devised, notably by Heinz Guderian, favored mobility over firepower, which was as the very core of the Blitzkrieg. This condemned these vehicles, which soon became the white elephants of the Wehrmacht, displayed in all propaganda displays, shows, and newsreels starting with the International Automobile Exposition in Berlin in 1939. So they tell them, you can't build tanks. You can't. And they're like, oh, we're not going to build tanks. We're going to make these gross tractors. 
Uh, okay, well, where, can we see him? Well, we're we're testing him currently <laughs> in the Soviet Union. They're like, oh, okay, you're, you're testing tractors, and so uh, uh, something's up. And then they bring him out for the you know this car, international car show, and they're like, oh yeah. Uh, these are our tractors, yeah, and they're this like is our tractors. You think somewhere down the line somebody would want? Uh, I don't think that's a tractor, <laughs> man. Another of these mediatic coups was that a platoon consisting of all three late prototypes, named Panzerzug Horstmann, after its commander, Lieutenant Hans Hortzman, was deployed in Norway, notably to give the impression of a larger production. Similar disinformation operations had been also successfully performed with the Heinkel 100 fighter, uh, despite the appearance in Spain of the BF-109. The three were landed at Oslo Harbor on April 19, 1940, and took part in local operation. Although handicapped by their speed, they were still an impressive sight, and by far the most heavily armed German tanks fielded there. So, okay, now they've got these tanks up there, and, and they're showing them off. And they're like, oh, oh, look, they're in Norway, and you know we've got these awesome-looking vehicles, and they're driving them down the road, and people are, are snapping pictures and sending it to the Allies and saying, hey, this is what they've got. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Fake out. <laughs> yeah, they faked them out. Like they were talking about that uh, uh, the Hinkle uh, 100 fighter. You know, they were thinking, oh, we're going to make all these amazing, you know, airplanes. But they they weren't. They were using these other ones. I, you know what? I just, deception. I know. I know. Deception. That's what it is. That's what it's all about, deception. All right. If you're going to name it a gross tractor, <laughs> yeah. don't worry. It's a, it's a tractor, and then it rolls into Nor- yeah. Norway, and it's running down there. This particular unit in Norway posted at the... Akershus Fortress in 1941, and their fate is unclear, although they were eventually captured in Norway by 1945 and scrapped afterwards. Uh, the two others seem to have taken part in operations in Ukraine and Romania. Okay, so they had they had five of these. Five of them, yeah. They sent three to Norway because they knew that spies would be snapping pictures. Mm-hmm. They paint them all up because there's pictures of these things, and they do look impressive. Yeah. And we'll post some pictures on Facebook but you know they've got crew, you know, you know, wow. all all stand up, fresh press, and they're driving the thing around, and they know that yeah. they're getting sent back to the sure. Allies. Sure, but they're like, okay, we need to send one to Romania and one to the Ukraine to give off. Oh, look, they've been spotted here. They're, this is what they're making. I did a little research on this, and according to the contemporary German sources, uh, three of the MBFZs were attached to the First Panzer Army and destroyed in battle with a Soviet BT-7 tank uh, in present-day Ukraine in 1941. The last known survivor, the gross tractor. I cannot say this <laughs> Nubofazun. There's a friend of ours, Ed Webster. He, he does. He's a historian mm-hmm. that does, you know, uh, all sorts of great work. And a friend of the show, and he's going to go, why can't you say that? It's a simple word. I'm like, because I'm a hillbilly from Kansas. <laughs> uh, anyway, the last known surviving was used by the Lear Instruction Unit in late 1944 as a target for training the Volkstrom, which is basically the civilian army. You know, that's yeah. when they were just grabbing civilians off the street. In use of the Panzerschreck 
43 and other anti-tank weapons. So they, they knew this thing wasn't any good, and they're like, okay, uh, let's get Joe Blow off the street. Yeah. Here, Joe, here, here's how you shoot this thing. Yeah. Shoot at that tank. Bam. Okay, that's great. <laughs> Next. <laughs> uh, all that survives of these tanks is a small a number of running gear parts preserved uh, in the uh, Gruber Valley War Memorial collection at uh, Kavam in Norway. So you'd have to go to Norway just to see... This is the running gear part, so they're all gone. That's all that's left. And I'm like, again, wasn't there one person that saw this and said, you know what, we we need to take this back and and put it on base or something and maybe save it. Amazing stuff, Russ. Okay, Russ, let's get into the second point. And we're going to talk about the what? Name the you know name the tank, putting some of the barrel art. But the one that reminds me or the one I think of every time I think of, you know, tanks being named, of course the Fury. Yeah. You well, know, sure. you, you on you the know, TV. That's what everybody's movie, yeah. But there's a tank, it's a Sherman tank in front of Fort Bliss, isn't it? Yeah. And it's called Foolish Fella 2. And and when we pulled into this parking lot, we were actually looking for the museum. And we're like, what, what? And I'm like, oh, look at that. We pull up right next to this tank, and, and they got it parked right out the front right now. And it's called Foolish Fella, too. And I'm like, quick, quick, take a picture of me with Foolish Fella. That was the name of the tank, and they got it painted on there. You know, and we've got questions. Let's go ahead and answer some of these. Tell us about it, Russ. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the nicknames and, and how that comes about, uh, Naming their tanks and their crews actually get to name them. And uh, when it's time for a tank crew to take command of a new vehicle, uh, they need to give it a name. Uh, With some exception, you name it entirely for the purpose of easily identifying it. Uh, When you're walking through the motor pool, reading the name stenciled on the gun or rocket pod is going to be a lot easier to read from a distance than a serial number would be able to read. You know what? That makes sense. So they've got 100 tanks out there. And you're walking out to them, and instead of, you know, holding the clipboard, trying to match up your numbers, you just look for, like, Foolish Fella or, or, you know, Fury or something wrote on the barrel. Sure. And they're like, oh, that's ours. Yeah. That, that's our yeah. home. That's it. Unlike with Humvees or other troop-carrying vehicles, often forgotten until it's time to use them, artillerymen and tankers take pride in what's theirs. Uh, the name has to be something that the crew could proudly sit in for hours until the fire direction center finally gets around to approving a fire mission. The name itself is generally something that invokes strength, humor, or holds sentimental value to one member of the crew, like a loved one. Uh, The command staff usually doesn't bother as long as it isn't too profane, and it typically follows the guidelines of the first letter being the same as your company, battery, squadron, for uniformity. It can't be too nasty. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. or offensive oh, sure. or something. And, and it's got to f- f- do the first la- letter of your company yeah. or your battery or whatever. Yeah. So, like, if you're an F company, you can write Fury on your barrel. Oh, okay. That's good info, man. I know. Yeah. So, an MLRS or a multiple r- launch rocket system in Alpha Battery could actually be named Alexander the Great or Ass Blaster. A Bravo battery gets something along the lines of Betty White or Boomstick, and Charlie Company would get names along the lines of Come Get Some or Cat Scratch Fever, and so on. Uh, okay, so you're in Company, or you know, you're in Battery B, and then you're like, okay, you can name it Betty White. Yeah, the first letter or Boomstick. Yeah. So <laughs> that all right? That's 
that's actually cool. I did not know about this. Yeah. Is something that I didn't. I haven't even researched it. The crew actually comes up with the name, submits it to the chain of command, and if it gets approved, they spray paint the name prominently on the gun. If the commander wants it to be all people's names, then they're all people's names. If they give the troop free reign, then that's their prerogative. People's names, you know, like Betty White. Uh, okay, but if they're like, you're in Company A and you can name it whatever you want, you can call it Ass Blaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, exactly. all right, all right. It should also be noted that some commanders may forego the entire process of naming their vehicles and guns altogether. Um, it is what it is, but some tankers and artillerymen may see it as bad luck to not give their baby a name, and troops can be particularly superstitious. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, I-, I can understand that. You know, you're sitting in this tank. For, you know, eight hours, whatever. Uh, let's go to our tanks, eight, nine, four, three, you know. Uh-huh. They're like, no, let's just name it Puri or Betty yeah. White or something. Yeah. Something that's significant to them, I mean, yeah. usually is what they would name it. So can a tank crew name their tank and then paint the name on it? Or Yeah, well, sure. Um, in the U.S., you first have to qualify as a crew through the gunnery process. Uh, once you've qualified, you're authorized to name your tank and paint the name on the gun tube. The only caveats are that it has to be clean enough that you aren't going to get your commanding officer in trouble. And the first letter has to be based on what company or troop you're assigned to. Uh, so we're, we're just hitting on, what, and this could be, uh, like, what about a Bradley? Yeah, Bradley crews also have this tradition, um, but they also paint their Vehicle names on the on the tow launcher. Even though the Brad Bradley's not what they consider a tank, yeah. it's a fighting vehicle. But they have the little tow launchers, so they would put uh, like if they're in Company C, they they put Cat Scratch on the side. Uh, so Russ, tell us a story. Yeah, this this story here actually takes place in uh, Assembly Area Hammer in Kuwait. Kind of a little article that I come across that I kind of wanted to read. Very interesting when it comes to. Tank nicknames and, and stenciling those on the on the guns. And it starts out by saying, make no mistake, the Big Punisher and Big Rooster are out there. In the desolate staging areas just south of the Iraqi border, creative tankers have been personalizing their big guns by stenciling nicknames on them. It's not something you slap up there. You've got to put some thought and creativity into it, said Staff Sergeant Robert Piscosha, a 26-year-old tank commander from Lakewood, New Jersey. Not only is the name game getting serious attention, it's become almost an obsession for the tankers of the 1st Battalion 64th Armor. However, all the tank names have to begin with the letter B in honor of the new Company B for the 1st Battalion 15th Infantry Regiment, a company of Bradley personnel carriers that was swapped with 2nd Battalion for a company of tanks. And some of those tank name results, names such as the Big Punisher and Baghdad Bound. But, but again, they're using their, yeah. you know, their company. Uh, yeah. Company, you know, company B, B, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. First letter of the company, yeah. By unanimous acclaim, Pascota's tank is graced with the best moniker, the best resolution yet, which is a play on United Nations' previous debate on an Iraq resolution. So the sergeant <laughs> put best resolution yet, and when they were coming out with all those United Nations resolutions um, on Iraq, yeah. he's like, this is the best resolution yet. <laughs> we're going to send this baby in there. Heck yeah. Oh, well, hats off to the sergeant. I know. That's a good name. Uh, each side of the main gun tube is stenciled with white letters over a black background, 
and cut out photos of a Saddam Hussein doll dressed in drag or pasted next to the name. So they got a Saddam Hussein doll and put a Barbie dress on it and hung it next. Wow. These guys. I don't. Well, you know what? You know, we're not trying to be offensive, but these guys. Got to keep your sense of humor when you're in a situation like that. Yeah, you're in a combat zone. You got to have a little sense of humor. Naming the tanks is a heated process. The tank crews offer up their suggestions, and the tank commander can veto the crew. And the higher company leadership has final say over whether the names are too offensive to grace a multi-million dollar piece of military hardware. Okay, so they're like, listen, we're not going to have the CNN crews, the Fox News crews, Uh, or BBC out there, and we're going to have something really offensive off the side. They don't want to have anything that promotes negativity or is demeaning or something, said Sergeant Michael Lewis, a 28-year-old from Marshall, Texas. Of course, the military has looser definitions of negativity than some, so names such as Ball Buster Incorporated are acceptable. <laughs> Ball Buster Incorporated. <laughs> I love it. I know. I, Sergeant Michael Lewis, if you're listening to this from Marshall, Texas, hats off to you, brother. I know. Ball Buster Incorporated. Thanks for your service out there, man. No doubt. Uh, Lewis, clad in a t-shirt and sunglasses, passed the time one day recently by doing maintenance on the big barrel of Bulldog 2. Lewis's tank commander served on Bulldog 1 in South Korea, so he wanted to carry on the tradition in Kuwait. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So just because, like, Furious 2 maybe wasn't destroyed in combat, it it was just using a... Another yeah, theater. Another theater. So if you're in, like, in the German theater and then you go to the, you know, Asian theater, Pacific theater, you just name it the second. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the names do not stop at the big gun. The smaller weapons have names that correspond to the others. For example, one tank's main gun is named Big Rooster and the smaller machine gun is stenciled Baby Cock. <laughs> Oh, okay, I'm not touching that one. <laughs> yeah, please not don't. Touching that one. Please don't, Charlie. Uh, so, does the tank keep its name after the crew cycles out? You know, let's say you know that their time they put in their time and they're they're out of there. Well, when all said and done, the tanks will go back into the army preposition system and actually be repainted. Another crew on another deployment will take possession of the tank, make it their home, and and give it a new name and a new stencil on the tube. You might have named your tank the Fury, and then you cycle out. They go back and repaint it, and I get it, and yeah. I, I name it, you know, uh, yeah. Furious. Yeah, because you'll have a whole new crew that's... Yeah. I, okay. Uh, wow, this is actually pretty good info. And from the information I have found, tank nicknames goes all the way back to tank crews giving their tanks a name all the way back to World War One. Russ, does tank naming go out into like the civilian world or something like that? Yeah, something else I just kind of wanted to throw in here with this particular topic. Found it quite interesting. The Unioto High School near Chillicothe, Ohio, here in the United States, has adopted the name of the Shermans when a former Army General, C.L. McCannahan, took over superintendent of the district of that school. Unioto Skyoto School District lies just opposite of the former site of a World War I-era Camp Sherman, and when it came to a vote, the student body unanimously voted in favor of their mascot being named the Shermans. Tank emblem was added as it was thought to be a fitting symbol, and according to a 1962 Chillicothe, Ohio Gazette article. This high school named it after the Sherman tank. Yeah. 
And, and now its mascot is the Sherman tank. It's the Sherman. Uh, tank. Okay, that's actually pretty cool too. Very very us. interesting too. I did find that any tank enthusiasts out there that like shirts or any memorabilia with tanks on them, um, they actually sell T-shirts and everything on their school website with the so, Sherman tank well, emblem and the. No, what's the name Sherman. of the school again? Where is it at? It's a. It's the Unioto High School. U N I O T O. And near Chillicothe, Ohio. And I'll try to remember to put a link up to that on our Facebook page when this episode comes out. So I can get a high school. Yeah, <laughs> the, with, their, know, with their actual mascot of a Sherman tank on the front of it. Dude, I'd want that just to, Yeah, it's it's neat. You know what? We need to pack up a couple of those and send them out to yeah. some people. And if there's anybody else out there that's got any ideas on any other mascots or anything like that that's named after tanks or stuff like that let us know i mean this is interesting stuff i need to send one of those to nicholas moran or you <laughs> yeah. know craig moore or ed webster or francis pullman because this is really unique i've never heard of a high school naming their mascot after after a tank before but really yeah. unique yeah, that's actually pretty cool just amazing well, okay russ uh, what a great episode you know we we struggled with saying different tank names and, you know, and talked about barrel art. I've learned a lot tonight. Yeah. I hope everybody else has. Really interesting. Um, let's go ahead and give our Patreons a shout out. Yeah. Alejandro Martinez is our first patron. Thank you, Alejandro. And then, of course, we got our uh, brother, Andy uh, Crow and Been Bjorn Ben. Quite, yeah. My girlfriend, Christy McCarty. Yay. Kevin Shen, Mark Drake. Odious Thero and Rick Smith. We love Rick. Oh, I know. <laughs> and we really do appreciate all you guys. A lot of you have been with us since the beginning, um, since we've had the Patreon program going out. And really, really appreciate your support. Hey, and talking of what? Talking of which, uh, if you ever want to get your name read out on yeah, our podcast, yeah. join our Patreon. Yeah. Uh, trust and, us. And all you folks, I mean, as long as we've got your ad, uh, mailing or shipping address, you'll probably be getting something in the mail here from us before long. Our, our Patreons have been so great. They uh, have. Uh, we've found a uh, very, very cool thing. We're going to do more information about this. Yeah. And, and we'll contact our uh, Patreon supporters. But we've got our hands on something really amazing. Yeah. And uh, we, we're going to ship that out to each and every one of our Patreon uh, guys and i'm still going you know trying to get francis pullman to send me a signed copy of his book to give that away in a contest francis, if you're listening <laughs> send us a book man <laughs> just sign it and send it to us i mean he only yeah. has fifty thousand followers know. begging I for know. a book but you know, know come on guy help us out <laughs> <laughs> well what a great show i guess uh, this is the closing so I'll, I'll go ahead and say this is charlie and this is russell happy tanking and as always Have a great week.